This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Joshua Leeds. Joshua is a sound researcher, music producer, and educator. He's one of the few published authorities in the emerging fields of psychoacoustics and bioacoustics. He's the author of The Power of Sound and Sonic Alchemy, and has worked in collaboration with Sounds True to create the music programs produced in collaboration with Dr. Andrew Weil called Deep Calm, Increase Vitality, and Relax and De-Stress. He's also created a music program with Sounds True called Through a Dog's Ear, Music to Calm Your Canine Companion. Currently, Joshua, in partnership with Lisa Spector and Sounds True, is working to release Goodnight Baby, Music to Soothe Your Infant to Sleep, which is to be released in the fall of 2011. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Joshua and I spoke about sound as a nutrient to the nervous system and the three primary elements of sound, tone, tempo, and pattern that Joshua uses when he psychoacoustically arranges music. We also discussed the groundbreaking work of sound researcher Alfred Tomatis, and then finally, how Joshua applies his work in psychoacoustics to creating music that is calming for our best friends, our canine companions. Here's my conversation with Joshua Leeds. Joshua, through your work, I was introduced to this sentence, sound is a nutrient for the nervous system. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. I can imagine sound being difficult or harsh or jarring to the nervous system, but how can it be a nutrient for the nervous system? That's a, that's a, a wonderful question to begin. Uh, I must attribute that sentence to uh, my main mentor in the study of psychoacoustics. Uh, Dr. Alfred Tomatis uh, was a French ear, nose, and throat surgeon uh, who passed away in 2001 at the ripe old age of 80 or 81 years old. And he was the first one, after 50 years of exploration, uh, from both the uh, physiological vantage point as well as then later into the psychological vantage point of the effect of music and sound on the human nervous system. And it was in the course of his uh, research that he came to understand that sound coming to the uh, unborn child uh, through the mother's nervous system um, was every bit as important from his vantage point uh, in the growth of the neurodevelopment of the unborn child as was actually the food that was coming to the baby through the umbilicus. And hence, it was from that foundation that he began to consider that sound was actually a nutrient to the nervous system just in the same way as uh, food is a nutrient to us uh, coming into the gastrological system. And just to go slowly here for a moment, can you tell me a little bit more about the research of Dr. Alfred Tomatis? I think that's how you said it. What was he researching? Yeah, it's, it's a funny name. It's uh, spelled T-O-M-A-T-I-S, and uh, some people pronounce it here in America Tomatis. Other people pronounce it Tomatis. And actually, in France, it's Tomati, I believe. Um, his research actually uh, has formed the foundation of um, modern-day sound therapy. And when I say that, I mean that his understanding of the role of the middle ear in the function of the nervous system in general uh, as being key 
was something that uh, that nobody else had has ever really um, focused upon. Interestingly enough, in the middle ear, which is about the size of maybe the last digit on on your pinky, um, very small, less than a half of an inch per se, there are three tiny bones. And we all learn about those when we're um, in junior high school in a physiology class, the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. And there are actually, in addition to the three tiny bones, there are two even smaller muscles. And it was upon these muscles that Tomatis began to focus his attention because he became aware that essentially these two little, little muscles are amongst the first that are actually functioning in the unborn child and perhaps the last to stop functioning when we die. And that these two tiny muscles, their function is basically to counter-lever these three bones of the middle ear and to essentially tune up our hearing to be able to take in a full spectrum of, of frequency or at times to be able to come become completely flaccid and loose if there is a fast, loud sound that is coming in to try to protect the eardrum, which comes right after these three uh, tiny bones. And what he became aware of was that another function was that essentially on a psychological level, if we didn't like what we were hearing and there was no way to get away from it, then these muscles would serve the same function in protecting the nervous system, so to speak, from uh, sounds that were psychologically irritating to us. Let's say the sound of a critical parent or the sound of a teacher or of a sibling or of some other kind of noise that was so grating to us on a deep internal level and that we had no other way of actually being able to get away from. In other words, it was like an onboard sampler, that could say, oh, the sound of my angry father, um, I have no way of being able to get away from that, but what I can do is I can, quote-unquote, tune it out. And this is the way that we're all basically equipped with this mechanism to be able to tune out offending sounds to us. And it was Tomatis' awareness that through this psychological process that then caused a physiological process to take place, that in effect what was happening was we were essentially out of our childhood experiences in living in the world around us, the noisy world around us, uh, that we were on a certain level uh, causing a lot of frequencies that as adults we actually needed to have, um, and that it was no longer necessary to have tuned those sounds out any longer. And he created ways of being able to essentially like a, a clicker for an automatic garage door, uh, to be able to hit the clicker, to be able to reopen up the, our, our ability to take in a full spectrum of sound, which has been proven to be actually a very important function. And he developed the technologies for being able to do that, which have then been inserted into sound therapies that are used both with people who've got neurodevelopmental issues anywhere from pervasive developmental delays or in the autistic spectrum on up to people who are just saying, you know, I feel like there's something takes place in my life here where I am not taking in the what is the effect of not taking in a full spectrum of frequency and I desire to be able to do that. So given this, if I want to provide my middle ear, those two muscles, with sound that is nutritious, sound that will help the middle ear open to a full range of sounds, what do I do? What's nutritious? Well, it, this, what he does is basically two things. It's called filtering and gating of sound. Uh, briefly, the filtering means that he essentially, uh, in there are various programs now, but in his original uh, sound therapy, which was done only by a trained uh, therapist, therapeutic professional, whereby you would come in and you would listen for two weeks, uh, for two hours a day, uh, to soundtracks through headphones, and it was mostly Mozart, uh, that he filtered the music whereby he took out over a progressive period of time the lowest 8,000 hertz of sound. 
Now, um, that would mean that uh, something that would have a full spectrum of sound that might sound like dum pum 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 by filtering out gradually over the course of, let's say, 15 days of listening, uh, it would end up sounding, by the time that you remove the bottom 8,000 hertz, it would, you would only hear the highest sibilance of sound. And that same phrase would now sound like... You would only be hearing the highest frequencies and everything underneath that lost. Well... Basically, what Tomatis believes is that the higher frequencies of sound basically charge the nervous system, whereas the lower frequencies of, of sound, the lowest frequencies of sound, tend to discharge the nervous system. And so he basically was putting the auditory system into a retraining, whereby the m muscles of the middle ear were being trained to essentially take in by taking in only the, the mid-range and the highest frequencies of sound and then going through a reverse process of adding back in all of the other frequencies of sound. Uh, it was retraining the two middle ears to essentially be able to take in a full spectrum of sound. Right? At the same time, he was doing something to strengthen the muscles of the sound. And in doing that, he was using a process called gating, where essentially he was creating random sonic events in the soundtrack that would cause the listener to stay in the space of active listening as opposed to passive hearing. If we can't find a pattern in a series of sound events that we're listening to, then what happens is our ears stay very tuned. They stay on kind of high alert. The, the two tiny muscles of the middle ear, it's as if send, we're sending them to the gym. They're actively working out because they're, they're constantly scanning, as does the whole nervous system when it can't find a pattern. It constantly scans until it can locate the pattern. And then on an auditory level, what happens is we go from active listening to passive hearing. Well, what Tomatis was doing was he was creating soundtracks that would keep our ears in the state of active listening. And what that did was it was literally like sending the middle ear to the gym. It was strengthening the muscles. And so between the combination of feeding a diet of very high-frequency sound and also at the same time working those two tiny muscles by keeping them in the state of active listening, it had the effect of essentially retraining the middle ear to be able to take in a full spectrum of sound. Now, Joshua, I know you work with intentional music, putting together psychoacoustically arranged music that will have beneficial effects on the listener. How has this work that you've been describing of Tomatis informed what you do? Which of these ideas do you incorporate into the music that you arrange? I actually, um, you know, I'm about 25 years into this work at this point, and I came into it as a, a composer in Hollywood uh, who was desperately looking to flee that, that arena because I just couldn't relate to the use of my love of music and sound uh, to be placed underneath screeching tires and shooting guns and most of the media that was coming out and still does come out of Hollywood. And so as I began my search and my own process of self-education in terms of what is it that creates meaningful and efficient and uh, beautiful to the most uh, to the to the best account that we can bring uh, a psychoacoustic soundtracks i've ended up coming to the conclusion that there are three primary elements and they all really have been either been reinforced or greatly informed by what it is that I've learned through the work of Dr. Tomatis. And that is what I call tone, tempo, and pattern. Tone has to do with resonance. Are the sounds that we're listening to high sounds or are they low sounds? And through the, the work of Tomatis, then I've come to understand that the high sounds, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, charge, they energize, they arouse the nervous system. The lower sounds tend to 
discharge the nervous system. And so when we look at how sounds are used, even whether or not in an orchestral uh, environment or how sounds are used in any form of orchestration, whether or not it's, it's rap music or it's country music, it doesn't matter. When we look at the way that sounds are used, you can see that the high sounds end, like in pop music, and to charge the nervous system, no, the no, low Joshua, sounds... Joshua, uh, just to be clear, what do you mean by charge and discharge the nervous system? Uh, I'm going to say energize. So when we talk about charging, we mean that it arouses the nervous system. It, it juices the, the nervous system. Right? Whereas the low sounds, um, due to the fact that in the cochlea, it, you have to go through the first 80% of that little spiral... Uh, that has got all of the cilia hair cells, you have to go through the first 80% before you get to the 20% that can process low sounds. And so if you inundate the nervous system with a lot of low sounds, it, atten- it essentially fatigues the nervous system. Now, in some cases, that's good. We want to use it for that. In other cases, we're going, well, wait, do we want to be, essentially, do we want to be arousing the nervous system? Do we want to be exciting the nervous system, feeding the nervous system, or do we want to be chilling out the nervous system? And so based upon that, you're going to choose where in the spectrum between high and low frequencies you're going to pick your sound sources, and that has to do with tone. That has to do with resonance. And so Tomatis used Mozart, which is primarily high-end frequency. It's mostly high frequency. His music, by the time that you take out the 8,000 hertz of sound, the Mozart music could still stand up. You could still hear that and understand that that actually related to bum, 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 bum. Whereas when you try to filter Beethoven, who wrote so much mid-range music, there was nothing left. And so Mozart was picked because of his, so much of his music uses high frequencies already. He wrote in the high registers of sound. Now, I just want to be clear about this. So, you know, when the nervous system is aroused, that means that I have more energy, I have a sense of vitality. When it's discharged through these lower yes. sounds, is that the same as relaxing? Yes, or even continue, you know, if we think about on the left-hand side of the spectrum, sleep, and we think on the right-hand side of the spectrum uh, as being completely alive, high beta, awake, alert, energized, the lower the sounds and the predominance of the sounds and the period of time that you listen to the sounds, low frequencies will discharge the nervous system until basically you just want to go to sleep. And again, this is a physiological function of of how much energy is being used up in the middle ear to be able to process the sound. If I'm sending a lot of low frequencies, the way that sound moves, it's like a hitchhiker. And it hits the first cilia cell in in the inner ear, and that cell goes, nope, not mine, pass it on. And it goes to the next one. Nope, not mine. Pass it on. Well, you have to go through about 12,000 of those transactions before you hit the, the last 20% of the, um, of the inner ear in which they go, oh, that's mine. I'll take it. And that one particular cilia hair cell that is, happens to be ch- uh, uh, attuned to that particular frequency, its job is to essentially get, to go, I'll take that frequency and I'm now going to convert it into an electrochemical signal and then send it up one of many different auditory pathways up into the brain. And so you are essentially fatiguing the first 80% of our, of our auditory processing when you send a large predominance of base frequency through the auditory system. Okay, so I think I have a sense of what you mean by tone. So in tone, we're talking about high or low. Do we want to charge or do we want to discharge? And there are times where we very very much want to, want to discharge the nervous system. We want to slow down the nervous system. We want to soothe the nervous system. When I do an, an album that's designed for people that, that need sleep, I'm not going to use a lot of high frequencies. I'm going to be writing uh, and, and rearranging in the mid-range down, down to the low end. The second category that has been informed by my work with Tomatis is in the realm of uh, tempo. And that is about what are we working at 120 beats per minute? Are we working at 80 beats per minute? Are we going higher? Are we going lower in terms of our tempo? Now, I'm not necessarily talking about the rhythm. 
because the rhythm it can be there can be many different rhythms within the tempo of let's say 80 beats per minute we could have salsa rhythms that are at 80 beats per minute we could have just straight 4/4 four, four. we could even have waltz tempos at at 3 quarter tempo so the tempo is just really corresponds to how many clicks per minute do we have and as we know through the process of entrainment the nervous system is set up to basically speed up or slow down based upon either an external or an internal periodic force. It's a wonderful thing. We notice it by people that tap their feet when they're listening to music, but that's just the tip of the iceberg because really what's going on is is that the tempo and through entrainment is, is basically influencing every single organ in the torso and I, without going in, unless you want me to go into the physiological basis for that, what we just what we do know is that the entire nervous system will respond to a periodic rhythm internally or externally. All of our organs entrain with each other. When they get out of out of sync with each other, we have a real big problem. Okay, and then the third component, the third of the element music, that yeah. I use uh, in all of my psychoacoustic work and in. Uh, as as part and parcel of everything that I do uh, professionally in the psychoacoustic realm uh, is about is directly from Dr. Tomatis, and that is about the role of pattern identification. Uh, briefly, pattern identification is the process whereby our brain is a pattern-seeking machine. Uh, it's an ecological function, even though it's got this tremendous infinite amount of, of synaptic, neuro, 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 neurological, and neuronic ability. The fact is, is that we can find how easily when we multitask, we become over the top, we become too distracted. I mean, we have this tremendous capacity. But really what we do is our capacity is to focus on something, get the pattern, and then move off it. Focus on something else and then move off it. If in this conversation, if you were trying to focus on three or four other things, then chances are you would not be able to keep up with our conversation, even with your greatly increased brain power. And so what that means is that the brain is a pattern-seeking machine. It looks to immediately establish the pattern, and on an auditory level, what that means is we go, I'm in active listening right now with Tammy Simon. And then... At a given point, I go into passive hearing with you, and I go into active listening with something else, and then into passive hearing. As soon as I figure out the pattern, then, I'm, then the brain automatically toggles it over from taking so much of my attention into having just really, it's in the background processing now. And so the ability to work with melody and with harmony and with rhythm and with random sonic events within a soundtrack are based upon whether or not we want somebody to be in a state where they are actively tuned in to what is on that soundtrack, meaning that we are holding their attention. We're kind of have them captive. We're, they can't really go anywhere else with their attention unless they want to just completely tune the whole thing out. Or in a state of many events when we want to be um, in the soothing end of the spectrum of the nervous system, whereby we actually don't want people to be in active listening. We actually want them to be in passive hearing. And so when you mix and match tone, tempo, and pattern, like a sonic alchemist, you're, you're just there working in the laboratory with resonance, which is tone, with entrainment, which is about tempo and rhythm, and with pattern, which is about do you want to be in a state of active listening or passive hearing, now these become the three criteria that we use in the development of intentional soundtracks. And when you break it down and you listen to anybody who's working in this field, whether or not they are consciously saying, I am working in psychoacoustically designed soundtracks, or they're just somebody who naturally understands how to do this, whether or not they're a speaker or whether or not they're a singer, you will find that the same three elements across the board can be found, tone, tempo, and pattern. And I attribute all of all, my, my understanding of all of these elements specifically right down. He's my main man, Dr. Alfred Tomatis.
Mm-hmm. Now, I want to listen to a track from Deep Calm, and this is a Schubert composition that you have psychoacoustically arranged. Could you introduce it for us, Joshua, and just tell us a little bit about how these three elements, tone, tempo, and pattern, informed you in the creation of this Schubert arrangement? Great. Um, What our listeners will find when they listen to this is uh, that this is done by a piano trio, uh, piano and uh, oboe and cello. And I started this album entitled Deep Calm with this piece because I actually wanted to meet the listener where they were. Now, of course, how do I know where people are who've got this album and who I'm not in their living room and I don't know what their day has been like before they put it on, but I can imagine that if they're reaching for an album called Deep Calm, they're coming out of a place where they really are saying, uh, rather than taking a drink or in addition to a, to a martini here or a glass of wine, I also on an auditory level want to affect my nervous system and I want to bring myself into as deep a level of calmness as I can. So one of the things that we do in psychoacoustically designed soundtracks is we, we try to imagine where a listener will be and we want to meet them there as opposed to coming in. If they're at a high beta and I come in at an alpha level or at a theta level, it's not going to do me any good. We're going to miss. And so I look to basically meet them at the level that I could imagine some spectrum of where they're going to be. And then from there, like a sonic escort, we're going to then either head down towards soothing and more calming uh, tone, tempo, and pattern, or we're going to head up if we were looking to energize the nervous system. So I started the album off with this piece. Um, and maybe what I'll do is after we play a little bit of it, then I'll explain why I picked this piece and what are the elements about this piece that were important to me. Perfect. Let's listen. Joshua, with that taste of this piece, tell us a little bit about how you put this together, what you were thinking. Great. Oh, what, what, a, what a great question. Um, I, was, I work with classical music because not only is it just drop-dead gorgeous, uh, to me the use of beauty is such a calming balm and a peaceful balm, and it reminds us of our own deepest um, harmony and what we are reflecting from from outside of us and bringing in it helps to remind us of the harmony of the world even though sometimes things do get uh, pretty dissonant uh, I use the classical music in addition to its beauty because they are for, for the most part 
the form of classical music is very easy to find. And so in this piece, within, uh, I would say certainly within the first 16 bars of this, within the first 30 seconds or 45 seconds of this, the nervous system, the brain has already said, oh, I get it, I get the pattern of this. Therefore, our pattern consideration, there's nothing that's going to pop out. There's nothing that is going to uh, cause us to go, what's that? And every time that we go, what's that, is, is an indication of when we've gone into, again, active listening. Um, the active listening function is, is imagine, uh, like uh, from our reptilian brain, imagine a lazy lizard on a rock in the sun. Uh, you do something that all of a sudden catches its attention. It flips over and it goes, wait a second, can I really lay here on my back in the sun or do I need to be alert? This whole process of active listening comes out of that survival mechanism of what do I need to be aware of here in my environment? Well, in picking music that has got a form where you just go, I recognize the form of it. Uh, there's nothing that's going to jump out at me. Uh, there's nothing that is going to really grab my attention. It allows us to immediately go from active listening into passive hearing. That's what we wanted to do here with Deep Calm and the selection of 12 pieces on this album. Every one of them are progressively becoming simpler and simpler in their arrangements. They're becoming slower in their tempo, and they are becoming, they are all very easy in their pattern. Then in terms of my pick of this for a particular piece of this Schubert Serenade, um, I picked it because of the complexity of the orchestration uh, with the three different instruments. The oboe is high. I figured if I'm going to be uh, coming into somebody who's just come in after a, a long day of work and they've been on the freeway getting home, a rush hour traffic, and they now really want to seriously chill out, um, I'm going to meet them, try to imagine where they might be. And chances are they're still pretty much in a beta state, and high instruments are going to uh, pretty much match that beta state of being. So I used an oboe in this particular piece. Uh, the cello is mid-range, and it helps to be able to just start bringing in the lower frequencies. And the use of the piano, uh, the accompaniment underneath the melody line, is in training. Uh, for the most part, the pianist uh, is keeping an ongoing, periodic, regular rhythm. Uh, and that is, therefore, between all of those elements, we've got our tone, high tone through the oboe, We've got our tempo, which is being established through the uh, left hand of the pianist in the arrangement, and we've got our pattern identification, whereby we have created something that is very easily identifiable. Uh, therefore, it falls into the category of passive hearing. Now, when I hear a phrase like, this music has been psychoacoustically arranged, it sounds very scientific, and I wonder if there is any scientific proof that this music creates a relaxation response in people? Um, well, there is scientific, and when we say scientific, then we're talking about where have there been clinical studies. There has been a lot of clinical study of Tomatis' work. And by the way, Tomatis' work is very controversial. And I mean, because he actually came in with concepts that went completely against the grain of what was traditional thought about the function of the middle ear. And so the work of Tomatis engenders a lot of heat. Uh, there are people that, that, uh, that just go, you know what, the science of Tomatis is all wrong, but it is undeniable that his sound therapies that have now been used with over a million people have a very highly uh, um, regarded effect. And so in many instances, people can't necessarily say why it is that certain things work, but they're saying it is undeniable that something is taking place here. And so even in the clinical research, of which there has been a great deal and, and there is plenty on the horizon and plenty that is currently being done around Tomatis' theories of high and low, of the effect of pattern identification, of the difference between active learning and passive, and uh, active listening and passive hearing. Uh, there is uh, there the uh, the study of what has taken place with the music that I have provided here uh, for the Deep Calm album and for some of the other albums that I've had the privilege of producing with Sounds True. Uh, there have been clinical studies of these things uh, done in schools in Colorado. Uh, 
Um, there have been a, there was a clinical study that was done recently at Loma Linda University uh, in the last two or three years for the effect of this kind of simple sound arrangement in terms of sleep. Uh, they have all tested out to be uh, showing that this concept of tone, tempo, and pattern is, um, is very efficacious. Uh, is it the end-all, and are they the only clinical studies, and do there, is there the need for further studies? Uh, the answer to that is no, they are not the only studies, and is there need for additional study? Yes. Can the same studies be duplicated? That is in process. Now, you're using this interesting phrase, simple sound. What do you mean by that? I mean that um, it's, a, it's a term that I use, uh, and what that stems from is my belief uh, through my years of study that when you have an overwhelmed nervous system, the ability to be able to tolerate sensory input is diminished. When we think about it, um, it, back in the day when people would get real sick, they would always have them in a dark room and, with very, and very quiet because they were basically saying it's taking everything this person has to be able to hold on, and they don't have a whole lot of juice left over to be spending on processing sensory information. So as somebody who started out in sound, what I think now is that we're dealing really with frequency. We're dealing with vibration. And all of our five sensory organs uh, located here in the head, our eyes, our nose, our mouth, the, the feel, the touch, which is skin body-wise, and our, and our auditory is, uh, is all based upon frequency. And even though they, it's not the same frequencies for all the different systems because clearly light is very different than sound, nonetheless, all of our sensory organs are sampling frequency, and there is a cost to the nervous system for the degree of stimulation that we can handle. And there have been times where I know where you can say, boy, that was just too much for me. It's like I, that didn't feel good to me. What, what, uh, or somebody else would say, man, that's so exciting. I love that. The amount of stimulation that is designed for a 16-year-old and, is de and, the, and, the, and uh, the amount of stimulation designed for something for an 80-year-old is going to be completely different. And so from an auditory vantage point, Tammy, what I've determined since so many of the soundtracks that I have been commissioned to create are around soundtracks for healing and for balance and for well-being. And I have determined that if somebody has got a chronically overwhelmed nervous system, their ability to take in a lot of complex auditory data is diminished. And so, therefore, I look to create a diet, so to speak, of sound that is easily assimilable. Mm -hmm. And so that, that might be um, the difference between if we have to listen to eight different timbres of instruments as opposed to just one, that is going to be far more taxing to the nervous system. And so sometimes I'll just work with a solo instrument. Maybe it's a piano. Maybe it's a guitar. That's a whole lot easier on the nervous system to take in. It doesn't cost as much to process as when you have lots of instruments. It's the same thing then also with the form of the sound. It's also the same thing, again, with the, with the, with the, uh, with the tempo. Now, Joshua, what would you think to this? I was spending some time recently with a friend of mine who was working on a project, and he commented, oh, I just listened to you know, a couple heavy metal bands while I was working on this project, and it gave me just the inspiration I needed. Well, I don't know a lot of adults that listen to heavy metal. Because their nervous system, doesn't, that's, not, that's not what they need in terms of an auditory self-medication. That, that most people who live in the heavy, listen to heavy metal, they're not even the girls. They're the teenage boys. The teenage girls want to listen to pop music, where they're happy lyrics and where everything comes out great at the end. The heavy metal has got a lot of distortion in it. And therefore... Uh, what it would tell me is if, if some, uh, you can learn a lot about people by the kind of music that they listen to. And if somebody is, I'm speaking very generalized here, and I'm not passing any, 
any uh, I, I don't know your friend and but the way that I what I learn about people when when I when I understand what kind of music they like to listen to it tells me a lot about uh what the frequencies are that their nervous system is running on mm-hmm. because if if somebody is seeking a lot of distortion on an auditory level maybe they they need that in order to be able to um uh, remediate uh, um and to chill out uh you know, too much thought, too much thinking. Somehow, this person, ha- this gentleman, has found that in doing that, it creates a certain effect on their nervous system. And so, good on him because he's using uh, an organic substance that, unless he he overdoes it and cranks it up and listens to it, you know, eighteen hours a day, nonstop, at too loud of a volume, he's found an organic means of being able to self-medicate and to be able to create a, a nervous system state that is conducive to a specific activity. Yeah, which is, I think, your point behind intentional music is that it can direct our nervous system in the direction that we want to go. Correct. I don't think that any music at this point right now can cure cancer, but it certainly can create a nervous system that is conducive to going through cancer treatment. And so I look at at intentional music and sound as the ability to use uh, music and soundtracks in a way that will create an environment that is conducive for the use of additional modalities when needed, and at times it may be in and of itself enough. Let's listen to a second track from Deep Calm. This is the final track. It's a Beethoven composition that you've psychoacoustically arranged from Deep Calm, which is a release that you have produced in collaboration with Dr. Andrew Weil. Tell us just a little bit about it. Uh, what people will find, and truthfully, I actually had to do very little to this, uh, to this composition, and those are my most favorite, are the ones that have the intrinsic elements. And basically, all I have to do is to say to whomever is doing the recording, uh, can we uh, possibly uh, either take something in and out of time? Can we make something even more rubato or make it even slower than it actually was written to be? Because I have a specific effect. Really, the only thing that I did to this, this is a long composition. It's a beautiful composition. It's piano only which means it's very, very easy on the nervous system. It'd be like having a mono diet. You're only eating just one thing. It's just, it's just easy to go down. It only costs a nickel for the nervous system to process it, as opposed to costing a dollar for something, let's say, metaphorically, for something more complex. It, it costs the nervous system less with simple sound. And so in this instance, I know that we won't have time to play it all because it's actually an eight-minute piece of music. But as she plays this piece of music, it's getting progressively slower and slower because where we wanted to leave people by the end of this album was in a state of very, very deep relaxation, hence the title Deep Calm. Okay, let's give it a listen.
beautiful. This is Beethoven, and uh, this again has to do with this concept of of pattern identification. Uh, these composers, uh, you know, in that period of time, over those couple hundred years, there from Bach on up, they were just plugged into something that uh, that is hard to find in uh, in our day and age. And one of the reasons, this was, of course, the Moonlight Sonata, very, very famous, one of his most famous. It's the Sonata Opus 27, number two, and it's already an adagio piece, an adagio means walking tempo. But uh, you'll notice that in this piece of music, one of the reasons why I selected it is because in the left hand of the piano, it's made up of a very steady arpeggio. And what I had uh, the pianist to perform this piece, my wonderful colleague Lisa Spector, uh, what I asked her to do was to actually take that left-hand figure and to play it probably for double or maybe even triple the amount of time before she actually brought in the melody on the right hand. And what that did was not only did it establish a pattern very easily, therefore the nervous system goes from active to passive and it goes into a very relaxed state. It just goes, I don't need to be alert to this. I don't need to be attentive. I can just let it be in the background. I can just drift away. Um, but in addition to that, I also lowered it an octave. And so somebody who is a purist of Beethoven's music, they, they might want to say, hey, what the heck are you doing with that piece of music? And I'm saying, well, I did what Beethoven would have done if I had said, hey, uh, listen, Master Beethoven, uh, we need to use this music for this, this, and this, and do you mind if we just lower it down an octave? And he says, sure, go right ahead. This is my assumption. Uh, you know, you have to be very careful with classical music because the classical music uh, people that are trained in conservatories, they're trained that you never touch anything, that you that even in your interpretation you have a very narrow range of how much you can change something because how dare you as a lowly classical interpreter of, of music change a single thing that, that the, the greats of Mozart and Bach and Beethoven, Schumann, Schubert, etc., you can't change anything. And I'm kind of a heretic when it comes to this because I actually I have studied at a conservatory and I, and I know the drill pretty well. And I believe that these guys would have been the first ones to line up behind either psychoacoustics or synthesizers or samplers or any of that stuff because they were so cutting edge as it was. But what I did is to be able to adhere to uh, to the tempo, and of course I have it so it's slowing down. And of course, by the if we had played that whole eight minutes, I guarantee you that you and myself, your engineer, and most of the people that were listening to this podcast would have probably been snoozing. And that's exactly what we wanted. Uh, but in addition to that, in terms of the tonality of it, then it, you noticed I picked a piece of music that stayed very mid-range. Beethoven is a very mid-range guy. Mozart, as I mentioned earlier, very high range. Beethoven liked that emotional zone, mid-range, very moody. As I was listening, the phrase of yours that occurred to me is sound remedies, that you work with sound remedies, and how someone could turn to a piece of music like we just heard instead of turning to some over-the-counter drug or some other remedy they might be seeking if they wanted to unwind. And that's really part of what you're going for here. That is exactly what I'm going for. You know, I think a lot about this concept of, um, you know, the ubiquity of music and sound in our culture. It's it's everywhere. We find it. It's, it's you know, we're, we're in our car. People automatically just go for, you know, hit the knob, to turn on the radio or to turn on a, a CD player or whatever. It's in the stores. It's in the restaurants. It's it's everywhere. And, and how great that our culture loves music. I'm, 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 I think that's just great. But what it's done is it's taken music and it's making it so it is uh, so... Um, uh, uh, ordinary, that we do, that we notice it more when it's not there than when it's there. And I think around the concept of music hunger. And I think, what would it be like if we actually looked at music, at a, at a composition, and we just went, I'm going to look at this as if it's a piece of the best chocolate that I could possibly have. And I'm only going to have one piece of chocolate a day. Spoken like a true chocoholic, right? Um, thinking about chocolate. And if we were to consider that, and if one were to say, you know what, I've just had a long day, and what piece of music would just be wonderful in shifting my mood, in actually shifting my brain waves, my heart rate, and my breath? And so, yes, pick one piece or an album's worth of music, and to be able to say, 
I'm using this because I love to listen to it, but I'm also what I really love is what it does for me. Mm-hmm. And that's really what intentional music is all about. And I think that as we understand more, and we're understanding more by the minute due to neuroscience and, and to the advent of uh, the MRI and CAT scans and PET scans, the field of music therapy and sound therapy is growing by leaps and bounds because as they are able to study it more due to these high-tech devices, what they're finding is that um, that actually the number of places in the brain that light up uh, in processing music and processing complex sound, uh, if they can understand that, it actually becomes a model for understanding cognitive function in general. And so consequently, the field of, of intentional music and sound is is uh, along for the ride of this tremendous research that's coming out around music and sound that's being studied by neuroscientists uh, because they want to understand how the brain works in general and they're using music as the means to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, Joshua, before we end our conversation, I'm not going to let you go without hearing how you've applied all of this work to psychoacoustically arranging music that will help calm and even curb negative behavior in dogs. Tell me how you got involved in classical music for dogs. Oh, it's one of those uh, circuitous, serendipitous uh, synchronicities uh, that, uh, that, that could only take place in the exciting realm of being on the planet Earth or some other place of beingness. But, I'm, but as a, I'm, I wouldn't call it a coincidence. There absolutely is a synchronicity. Uh, I, my, the wonderful pianist that we've been listening to, Lisa Spector, uh, is a Juilliard-trained concert pianist who also um, used to raise guide dogs for the blind. And so she, in the process of that, at any one time could have up to eight puppies, beautiful puppies, that she was raising for the guide dogs. And um, she would, of course, be practicing with her enormous grand piano. And as soon as she would sit down to play, they would all come, they all romp in from all around the house and gather and, and lay underneath her piano. So Lisa, at the time, about eight or nine years ago, was running a music school uh, in Half Moon Bay, California. Came to one of my seminars because she wanted to understand how to use psychoacoustics with some of her neurodevelopmentally challenged students. She began to notice that some of the same concepts that I was playing and that I was utilizing in relationship to sound therapies for children and for adults who had neurodevelopmental issues, she wondered whether or not any of those same concepts could actually work in relationship to animals. So she approached me, and she asked me whether or not I'd consider taking these principles and applying them uh, for um, canine uh, uh, behavioral issues, separation anxiety, different kinds of excitement anxieties uh, that, that, that dogs have. And at first when she approached me, I, I, pol- I politely demurred, and I just went, oh, my God, my entire career is going to go to the dogs and every other bad pun that I could think of. And, uh, but as I began to think about it, I thought, God, this would actually be a wonderful opportunity to begin to explore cross-species what is the effect of music and sound on the nervous system. Now, not just of humans, but four-legged as well, and why not take that into agriculture? I happened to uh, then, I agreed to go into the studio, cut four hours of music, insisted that we go into clinical research on it, and uh, in order to be able to find out what we could find out. And it was during that time that research was going on that I happened to speak with, with uh, a very lovely human being by the name of Tammy Simon, who happens to um, own and be the founder and the director of Sounds True, yours truly, you being you. Um, and uh, actually, when I say yours truly, meaning you truly, Tammy Simon, and I heard your dog bar- barking in the background. I remember. And I don't know if you recall the conversation. Because I this was Yeah, this was probably back in about 2006. And at that time, we were uh, in, we had just come out of clinical research, two years of it, and the results had been extraordinary. And it was such that I decided that I would write a book about it, uh, co-authored with Susan Wagner, a veterinary neurologist. And when I heard the dog barking in the background, I said, Tammy, do I hear a dog in, in your office? To which you said, oh, yes, we're a dog-friendly company. We have 15 dogs here. 
And you said, why do you ask? And I said, well, because, you know, it's funny. I happen to be working on a dog project myself. And it was from there that began a wonderful collaboration between Sounds True and my company, Bioacoustic Research, uh, whereby uh, Sounds True ended up publishing the book Through a Dog's Ear and then a series of CDs that has followed that have become an absolutely critical success within the, the professional dog world and are have been sold widely. And I believe that uh, the first title that we did with you, Through a Dog's Ear, uh, Music to Calm Your Canine Companion, is, is one of the best sellers. It sounds true. Is that correct? I believe that is correct. Now, Joshua, I'm curious. The actual music that you psychoacoustically arranged for dogs how is it similar or different to what we've been listening to from Deep Calm? How is it different for dogs than it is for humans? This is the, that is the greatest question in this, uh, in this conversation, because here's the great answer. It's the same. The canine nervous system, it is almost the same. But it is so close that I would be using that same Beethoven piece with the on the dog albums i would not be using the piece that we played at the top of the show with the oboe because i found that that the high instruments those did not accomplish what we wanted they were too charging to the dog's auditory system which is of course much more sensitive than our own but that what we found in our research is that the canine nervous system over all of these thousands of years of symbiotic interrelationship with the human nervous system is very, very close in terms of the effect. And so the exact same concepts of tone, tempo, and pattern apply to the music that we use for the dogs as the music that we use for the human beings. The difference being that the dogs like it even simpler. The simpler the sound, the slower the sound, the easier on the nervous system. And these dogs go down like that. They just go, boom. It causes our animals to just go, I am down for the count. I am going into a calm space here that, uh, that of course, is a welcome space for the nervous system for dogs that have got different kinds of anxiety of issues, of which I want to say one in seven in America exhibit. Now, listeners, if you're around where your dogs are, you can gather your dogs at this point because in just a few moments we'll play a track from Through a Dog's Ear. But before we do, Joshua, what I'd love to know is what your vision is for the music you're creating. I know you're a visionary. I know you have quite a sense of mission about the bioacoustic research you've done. What's your hope for how the music you've created, whether it's for dogs or people, will impact the world? Oh, I'm, I, I just welcome that inquiry, uh, and I'll briefly answer that. Uh, I believe that uh, sound and the way that sound affects the nervous system of everything on this planet is, uh, is far deeper than most of us realize. Remember, everything is about resonance and about how one vibration sets another vibration into motion. We are resonant beings. We are all made up of vibration, whether or not it's animal, mineral, plant, it doesn't matter. We are all moved by, by, by vibration. And the auditory vibration is one that is close enough to our nervous system. It's only, you know, sound only travels at 740 miles per hour. We fly at close to that speed. We fly at 550, 600 miles on a commercial jetliner. So sound is, is, is what I call a resident frequency. It's an easy way to change the frequency of human beings. And now what we're finding of animals, and I believe the same thing holds true with agriculture and with plants. When I think about vibration and I think about frequency, they're one and the same. Frequency just is the measurement of vibration. And now look at the frequency world that we live in. We're surrounded by Wi-Fi. We hold cell phones up to our ears on a daily basis, many of us for hours at a time. Uh, everything in frequency is amped up on this planet. 
And so for me, whether or not it happens to be about beautiful Beethoven or whether or not it happens to be about a pure sine wave tone that happens to correspond to a certain chakra center or happens to correspond to a certain body center, really where I have arrived and my mission really at this point is how to create relevant, meaningful, vital utilizations of sound, sound awareness in this day and age of living in the world in 2020, 2030, what does it mean to live in a frequency world? That's really where I come in at this point in terms of looking for the most extraordinary ways that we can understand how to use frequency in a meaningful, healthy, and and life-empowering fashion. Wonderful. And now, uh, if our listeners have their dogs near them by the speaker, we'll listen to the first track, Bach Prelude from Through a Dog's Ear. If any of you are listening with a canine companion close by and your canine has perhaps happily fallen asleep, feel free to send sounds through a photo. We've actually received several photos of people who have been listening to Through a Dog's Ear with their canine companion, and they show us beautiful photos of their dogs happily fast asleep, so feel free. Joshua, it's been wonderful to talk to you and hear about what's informed the psychoacoustic arrangements that you've created. Tammy, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Joshua Leeds, he is the creator of three CDs in collaboration with Dr. Andrew Weil, Deep Calm, Relax, and De-Stress, 
and increase vitality, as well as a book CD from Sounds True called Through a Dog's Ear, using sound to improve the health and behavior of your canine companion, and a series of CDs in the Through a Dog's Ear series. Joshua, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much, Tammy. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.